The following is a special sponsored edition of the Big Four Bio Podcast. Daniel Levine, and this is the Big Four Bio Podcast. Emerging biotechs often face a challenge of how to best access the expertise they need while being careful to manage their limited resources. Danforth Advisors has assembled industry-proven talent to help companies benefit from specialized experts in a flexible way to help companies shape their preclinical strategies and guide them in their transition from research to development. We spoke to Romani Varanasi, Managing Director of Development Strategy and Operations for Danforth Advisors, about the critical role preclinical advisors can play in helping early-stage companies advance to the clinic, when emerging biotechs should consider using outsourced development talent as a cost-effective way to leverage the insights of seasoned industry veterans, and how these relationships can help build the confidence of investors and partners. Romani, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here, Danny. Thank you for the invitation. We're going to talk about the development process and how that function is run, particularly for early stage companies with fewer resources. We're going to talk about the key roles and the best ways for a company to get the expertise they need along the development continuum. Perhaps we should start with the typical composition of a development team inside an early stage biotech company. What are the critical pieces? Absolutely, Danny. This is, you know, a complex um, thing we're trying to do here in terms of drug development and advancing these compounds through the through the patients. And we're going to need a pretty inter- interdisciplinary team. And typically, with early stage companies, whether they be early as in early in their funding stage or early in development, typically you don't want to have too many people within the company. Or cash constraints always are mind. One has to be mindful of that, but. Typically, you're looking at preclinical folks, folks who are looking at essentially um, or thinking about progressing programs uh, through to the IND phase. Then you've got a clinical group who's actually thinking about advancing programs through the clinic and, and running clinical development uh, studies. And then you've got a group that actually supports those trials, such as the clinical operations group. And then you've got also people who support on the strategic outsourcing who are really stepping in and helping folks connect with the um, the appropriate CROs or groups who are the externally focused groups or externally situated groups who are help you running, uh, helping you run all these studies. So it's a pretty interdisciplinary team you're looking at. And I also do want to say one of the most critical parts that people often forget about is also the commercial side of things. Um, again, when you're a small company, you can't um, really um, overlook the need um, to think about commercial from early stage on, it, it really looking at, you know, with um, looking at development with the end in mind. So again, heavily interdisciplinary with preclinical, clinical ops, as well as commercial. How do companies devise a preclinical strategy? Do they usually do so with the ultimate goal of winning an approval in mind or 
is it just a closer term goal of, of getting an IND? Yeah, that's that's a good question. You know, oftentimes small companies live and die by milestones, right? When we get funding, uh, we typically the funding is structured in a way where sometimes you, you get the, the, the full amount up front, the full dollars up front. Sometimes the, the dollars are tranched, depending on what milestones you hit or don't hit. Um, so whereas many small companies do live by, um, you know, sort of this milestone of let's get to the next goal, which in this case might be IND. Really, at the end of the day, they do have to think long term because we are in a long term game here. We have to have the long view with the end in mind being getting the drug, right drug to the right patient in the right way. And I think, you know, the, the best companies and the most successful companies build or plan to build with that view in mind. Now, you can run tactically uh, looking at your next stage milestone, but ultimately, uh, to be truly successful and to think about longer term strategy and vision, you have to be thinking two or three steps ahead, which includes, which is what I said earlier, includes the, the need to, to think about the commercial component of how your compound today, which ultimately will then become a drug soon or later on, whenever that time frame is, how does it actually impact patients? Is there a market for the drug? And if at the end of the day, you've spent your whatever hundreds of millions of dollars and many, many years getting to the market and there is no value to the drug because there is no market. Well, you haven't done your your homework well, you know, up front by not thinking about the commercial piece. So yes, there is a close term, you know, goal or milestone that that companies look at, which is maybe in this case the IND, or it could be phase one studies, or it could be phase two success, et cetera. But ultimately we do have to think about um about the, the, the longer view of things. And, and this is true irrespective of what kind of a company you are, whether you're a preclinical company or you're a clinical company. Of course, the risk profile is going to change depending on what stage you're at, but ultimately you still need to have that long view. Early stage companies have to be careful to make the best use of their limited dollars as they push to the next milestone. At what point in their evolution should they think about leveraging preclinical development advisory to supplement or guide their internal team? Absolutely. I mean, again, preclinical development is a very complex phase of, of overall drug development. It's as complex as the clinical piece as well. Um, really, if you're a company that is um, looking to advance um, your compound through the preclinical development stage, you ought to be thinking about engaging the right types of resources, advisory support, full-time support as well, but but really having the right resources in-house um, when you are at that lead optimization phase. And what that means is you've got a compound, a molecule in hand that you have run some early studies on in vitro and or in vivo, some really early research studies. And you've got some hint of activity. This compound you know, inhibit, inhibits some target or has some sort of impact in terms of converting um, you know, yes to a no or a no to a yes in terms of how you've devised your, your ultimate scientific experiment. But once you know that there's some hint of activity, you ought to start thinking about what that plan to preclinical development is going to be. Because ultimately, it's a long haul. you got to think about what kind of mechanism of action studies or MOA studies you're going to be thinking about or, or having to design. You have to screen and identify the right tox and PK studies. You have to do screening and rage finding studies. You have to think about advanced efficacy studies. 
you have to also start thinking about building that clinical team, right? Ultimately, the clinician, the CMO, the clinical team will also input into that preclinical design. Then you also have to start thinking about how am I going to get to a pre-IND meeting? How am I going to think about um, IND enabling talks and wrapping that all up into a concerted, uh, comprehensive package that ultimately I can take to the FDA and they can basically, you know, give me the green light to move forward. So it is, um, you have to think about this early on because planning is, planning is actually what is going to support and enable your execution to be successful. And those companies that don't do very well typically fail to hit their milestones are those that have not planned appropriately and are kind of running amok, if you will, running to play catch up. And so really, the guidance that, that, you know, I've always thought about is as you are discovering your compounds, if there's any hint of activity, you ought to be starting to think about getting the right people, preclinical people, as well as some clinical um, in, in the room to start th- talking about what that plan is going to look like. At what point in a company's evolution should it think about bringing on a chief medical officer? Is that something that happens preclinically or do they do that once they've reached the clinic? Yeah. Okay. Well, therein lies the concern, right? So a lot of people will actually wait until it's too late, which is, well, I'm ready to start a clinical study. Now let me get my CMO. Well, you're too late. You're late to the game. So really the guidance is to bring your chief medical officer or clinical advisor early on. It's never too early. Um, Clearly you don't want to be hiring full-time early, but there's no reason you can't pull in an advisor or two to help you start to think about what a target product profile would look like or should look like. And this is, again, where commercial input matters. So a TPP outlines a desired profile or characteristics of a target product that's aimed essentially at a particular disease or disease state. And they really state the intended use, which is, you know, ultimately, what are the safety things you need to be mindful of? What's the type of efficacy you want? And ultimately, what type of target population in humans are you treating? Well, you're not going to get to that unless you're actually bringing them in early on and helping them input into the preclinical design. Because why? Because in the preclinical phase, you're testing animal models. And if you're picking the wrong model to test, well, that's not going to tell you ultimately the right type of data that you need in order to treat the right patient population. And so the guidance really is bring your clinicians as advisors in early so they can start to sit with the preclinical group and start to refine or define even what that target product profile profile would look like, including positioning, including clinical indication selection, including mapping out ultimately what that trial might look like, but then what are the studies you need to do today to satisfy your IND package that is essentially that essentially you are going to take to the FDA and have them approve so that you can then run the clinical studies. So really, you want them in as early as possible, clearly not at the point where you're discovering a target or discovering a compound against a target, because they really there's, there's no activity yet. But as soon as you've got hints of activity of any compound or molecule in any type of disease state, you want to bring your clinicians in to start the dialogue with you. In a preclinical stage company, what would a chief medical officer do? What types of insights can they provide and what might get done or or done differently as a result of having that expertise available in a fractional capacity? So, I mean, one of the key things they do is development guidance. So they're sitting with the preclinical experts and, again, looking at the data 
in a very concerted way to say, where are we seeing hints of activity in, in a particular neurological mouse model or this type of um, monkey model? And they're really working with the preclinical experts to start to analyze that data. And then they'll start to look at what's the best lead indication to look at. You can't just pick any indication, right? Because ultimately, you've got limited set of dollars with which to work and with which to create success. Plus, you also ultimately are looking at the end game, which is what's the right type of patient population I want to treat? And so they'll help you derive or design um, a development strategy that outlines what the lead indication ought to be. They look at initial dosing. They look at what's the optimum development path. Are there mechanisms by which you can think about getting a fast track, which oftentimes companies will try to get, which accelerates, as, as the name would imply? Um, a product's ability to move through the development pipeline with FDA guidance and FDA approval. Um, there's also essentially what are the regulatory components you have to be mindful of? Um, you know, this is not the, a good med chief medical officer or a good clinician will ultimately know generally what the guidance is, but they're not the experts in that. This is where, again, you would bring in yet another expert, a regulatory expert, but they have a really good sense of what the FDA is going to approve or not as endpoints, and then influence how that clinical trial is designed to ultimately get to the, the success point that you're looking at. Another key area that they can bring to the table um, with respect to thinking about clinical studies and clinical strategy are KOL relationships or key opinion leader relationships, wherein they're leveraging a well-established network to really help clients, or in this case, the companies, build important relationships to actually facilitate that clinical plan. No one person has everything in their head. We all wish that would be the case, but we have to leverage experts, SMEs or subject medical experts, um, subject matter experts. So in this case, they have the ability to bring to the table a whole knowledge base of, of individuals who have been in the industry or been in the, you know, running clinical trials or clinicians themselves and have a sense as to what patients need and what the unmet medical needs are vis-a-vis -vis gap. So they, they play a real sort of extended and overarching role in terms of supporting the preclinical path to ultimately drive the right type of clinical strategy. Once companies reach the clinical stage, it's not uncommon to outsource the work of clinical operations or clinical trial management. But are there other areas where clinical stage companies can benefit from the strategic guidance or development advisors? Do they build out their own internal resources at that stage? Well, they can, right? There's nothing to say you can't. But the question then becomes, ultimately, how are you spending your limited, likely limited dollars? And are you leveraging the experts? externally in the right way, or are you just hiring them internally and then having them work on maybe one or two product, products or programs that may not ultimately advance? But other areas where clinical stage companies can really benefit from the guidance of development advisors include things like pharmacovigilance, medical affairs, statistics. Again, as we all know, clinical development is a very complex um, process. Process doesn't even start to define it. It's process on top of process. And so KOL relationships, leveraging those, leveraging um, individuals who think about medical affairs. If you're, for instance, a phase two company, you likely have a chief medical officer on staff. But again, that one person can't manage everything, can't think about everything all the time. So they're leveraging additional development experts from the external um, world, if you will, from the external community 
wherein these people are bringing in additional key opinion leader relationships, or they're helping think about how to actually um, strategically communicate, for instance, some of the data sets that are that are um, that are being um, unveiled in terms of the clinical trial um, output. And so, <clears throat> medical affairs individuals, and then people who are also managing safety databases. So someone who's actually digging in and understanding during the process of any clinical trial, what are the what are the safety issues that are being um, identified? Are patients, are there any serious adverse events that patients are exhibiting, patients dying? So this is all information that is going to be gathered in real time, ultimately to the CMO, but maybe not directly by the CMO. And so having access to additional medical advisors or development advisors um, you know, really bolsters, if you will, the the clinical um, support structure around being able to um, undertake a successful clinical trial. How about with regards to regulatory affairs? What role might a fractional chief medical officer or development advisor play in shaping and participating in discussions with regulators? Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, we're not going to get anywhere as, as an organization without the right regulatory support. And um, really, the regulatory advisors and regulatory individuals are the, the link to the FDA or to any regulatory body for that, for that matter. So as, as, as we all know, they derive strategy. They're really thinking about, again, given the target product profile of any one drug, how are we going to develop it? If we're going to develop it this way, what are the, the, the endpoints we need to keep in mind vis-a-vis what the FDA guidance is? Are biomarkers a, a, a sufficient endpoint? And if so, why? If not, why not? And ultimately, also operationally, really, they're the connection to the, the, the actual individuals within the FDA. So they're the ones who get the meetings, who, who help us communicate in the right way with the FDA authorities or the regulatory authorities as to what we are doing. Because at every step of the way, we have to get guidance from the FDA or whatever regulatory body to advance our program. We, this is not one of these, um, you know, let's just go, you know, throw it at the wall and see what sticks situation. But rather, if we are developing a drug, and I, I always come back to what are we spending money to do here? If we're spending money to advance a program from A to B to C, are we all ultimately undertaking it in the right regulatory framework? Because if we get to the end stage and we haven't done that, then we're going to go back to square one. The FDA is not going to approve or the EMA or whatever regulatory authority is going to say, sorry, you guys didn't follow protocol. You have to go back to the beginning. So it, regulatory affairs, again, when do you bring those folks in? I would say as soon as possible. As soon as you are starting to think about trial design or even when you're getting ready to file an NDA prior to filing that NDA, they're the ones who are going to really help you schedule the right type of meeting, prepare that IND package, ensure that the right um, language is in there to accommodate what the FDA typically wants to see in an IND package. So, um, you know, a chief medical officer, fractional or full time, uh, will work heavily, very closely with a regulatory person to help guide the whole development team to ensure that essentially they are they're marshalling along within the right guardrails that the FDA or, again, any regulatory authority is going to um, accept. It's a difficult time for raising capital and has been for a few years. We've seen companies live and die by clinical trial successes. It's not unusual to see a substantial financing announce on the heels of positive results or cuts following disappointing ones. Has this intensified the importance of having a chief medical officer or a well-built development function to gain 
confidence of investors? Absolutely, right. Um, the investors, it's all about the people. In our industry, it's all about the strength of the people and ultimately the strength of the team. And any investor who's putting money into a company is going to look at the team first. You know, can they execute? Have they executed before? Have they done this before? And if so, has they, have they been successful? But more importantly, have they done this before and have they seen failures along the way? And do they know as a team how to pivot along those failures? Because again, we are working, typically companies in our industry that are looking to raise money in any given day are always trying to manage their dollars in the right way. And having that team that can pivot when things don't work out or that can accelerate when things are really working well, that's being wise, right, in terms of how you're building a team. So at the end of the day, when you're seeing um, um, disappointing results, investors lose confidence in companies when the team is not a tight team and when the team, whether it's comprised of, of again, a fractional person or not, if the team is not a tight team and, and cannot execute and cannot pivot and manage um, the ups and downs, and that, that then again the 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 confidence of the investor starts to wane there. So you know the question is often asked about well, do we really need to have someone full time doing this or or fractional doing this? And again, I I would put the fractional versus full time aside for a moment and say it's probably you know the way to think about it is you really want to have someone or a team who's going to be able to pivot and advance a program when it's successful, but also identify possible other indications to pursue when a program fails. So um, at the end of the day, really, um, the, the, in, the integrity of the team is driven by how, how well they've done in, in, in the past and how they can think about looking to the future to, to, advanced, um, to advanced programs. At the same time, I'd argue that the difficult financing environment has increased the importance of dealmaking and partnerships. What do prospective partners look for in assessing a company's development approach and resources? Yeah, I mean, again, it comes down to the team, right? It comes down to, is this team uh, a group that can work together and um, really uh, create value? Because it's about value creation in our industry. And if you're doing a deal wherein, um, let's say I'm company X and I'm looking to in-license a deal from another company, that company who is going to be giving me their product through the deal is really vetting me against possibly other suitors they may have. And why would they select me uh, over any other company? Well, it's because I've demonstrated that I've got the right individuals, that they as a collective are thinking about the right things, whether it be preclinical, clinical, regulatory, commercial, et cetera. They're well experienced. They've, they've done this before, but they also know how to pivot when things are going awry or things are going amok. So deal making, to your point, Danny, is, is a bigger thing these days because one has to get creative with how one is spending dollars. And the last thing I want to do, again, as a company that might be looking to put my assets into another company is throw it over the fence and not really know what that other company is doing with it. So it really comes down to how how much success has the team that I'm thinking of partnering with seen vis-a-vis their their prior experiences, and ultimately, um, you know, are they really optimizing the product? In this case, a drug, a biotherapeutic, whatever whatever the case may be, um, it, to the right population. Because again, we are we are working with limited dollars, and the last thing we want to do is waste the dollars and ultimately not get our drug to the right group of people. 
And so there are mechanisms by which we can think about right, you know, right target for right drug. There are personalized medicine approaches. Um, you know, there are AI approaches. There's creative clinical trial design. And I'm going to want to work with a team that is very creative in how they're thinking about drug development versus just following sort of a tried and tested path that may not have worked in the past and, you know, um, for which the company really needs to be more creative. So again, it does come down, come down to the team. It come, does come down to the development function and the development resources and how integrated they, they actually work together. What's the case today for a company using outsourced development talent and to what extent can this accomplish their needs of balancing cost while bringing in the expertise they, they need? You know, balancing costs is, is the first and foremost thing, really. And, and, you know, you want to do that without sacrificing value. So, um, you know, what are the, um, what's the case really for outsourced talent, uh, development talent? Um, preserving your runway, preserving your cash. Um, you know, if you think about hiring a full-time executive um, to, or development person, in this case, senior development person, whether they be preclinical, clinical, or regulatory, um, or even clinical operations, there's a whole sort of a recruiter fee that you're paying. There's a full-time salary. There's, in terms of the comp, there's the big comp, right, the benefits. And then there's, you know, ultimately um, let go clauses you might have to be mindful of, et cetera. Um, the notion of a variable, a variable support, though, really goes a long way because you can get access to, um, to experienced executives who have done this before, who bring to the table a broad swath of experience, having worked in big companies, small companies, um, and who have a sense of urgency, but who can also work in a nimble manner, nimble fashion. So you're really using your cash wisely when you're accessing outsourced development talent. And you're actually able as a company to manage your failures that much more acutely and that much more smartly. Because why? Because you can pivot through a variable resource model you can, in a, in a scenario where you have a failed effort or a, a milestone you have missed, you can very easily pivot. You can dial down that resource or you can dial it up if you have successes and you need to do more. Or if you need to pivot in the failure scenario to another indication, you may not want that particular, in this case, let's say, fractional chief medical officer you had brought on, but rather you might want someone with a slightly different set of experiences because now you're pivoting to another indication. Well, if you had someone who was in a full-time role, you wouldn't be able to do that. You'd, you'd be stuck, if you will, to the lack of a better term, with a resource that might not have the experience base and the expertise to now pivot into another indication. And so I think the smart way of developing, if you're a small company and you are really under a watchful eye of your investors um, in terms of uh, being uh, using your resources and your cash uh, wisely, I think you'd be best served really by bringing in just the minimal amount of people to really run the operations on a full-time basis, but then accessing fractional resources um, who, again, in our day and age here, there, there are so many well-educated, well-experienced, um, high, high expert, you know, highly expert uh, people in our industry who, who have done so well for themselves in terms of developing drugs and seeing successes with drugs. And they have so much knowledge to share. And they're available to support companies who actually don't have the wherewithal to actually bring people in full time. So I think there is a huge case to be made for outsourced development talent. But that doesn't mean to say that a company has to live and die with outsourced development. There comes a time when when a company is is um, 
advanced enough or mature enough to say, okay, now we have a, a huge pipeline, not just one program or two programs, but we've got a huge product pipeline that we need to manage. And a fractional resource will not be sufficient for us. We need to bring in a full-time resource, but actually we can supplement what that full-time resource is with some additional fractional resources. So I think, you know, the, the situation can be very bespoke to the type of company you are and the type of product pipeline or product portfolio you have. Um, so no one solution fits all, but I think there's certainly a case to be made uh, with respect to the cash runways that we're all worried about, the financing environment that we're all in, and the talent that's out there that's accessible in a variable model to actually consider outsourced development as we continue to build our companies. Danforth works with companies to provide seasoned CMOs and other preclinical and clinical development professionals. How do you go about matching the right consultant to the company? Does it depend on where a company is in development, specific areas of focus and expertise, or are there softer issues like personality and style? I'm going to answer very simply, Danny. I'm going to say yes to all the above, because otherwise we wouldn't be doing service or we would be doing a disservice to the groups that we would support that we would want to support or are supporting it is all bespoke development is very bespoke um any particular pro your product you're looking at or patient you're trying to treat it, it's got to be very tailored and that's why this industry is so challenging and so complicated um so at the end of the day just from a process perspective if we uh, if someone comes to us and says, a uh, client comes to us and says, well, we've got this unmet need, we'll have conversations with them. We'll say, let us understand what your needs are. And we um, internally at Danforth, you know, there's several of us who've been operators within small or big companies. So we know what it takes to build companies and to, to grow them successfully. And, and we understand where the pain points are. So we'll talk to these folks and say, well, let us understand what your needs are. Okay, you're a company that's, uh, for example, going into the clinic. Well, do you have any clinical people? No. Okay. Well, let's talk about the indications you're looking at and, you know, and so on and so forth. And so we then we'll identify we've got um, many CMOs and many preclinical advisors and regulatory advisors and clinical ops advisors and operational people on the bench, so to speak. And we, we've got them available to, to step in and support these companies as they, as they, um, as they identify their unmet needs. And so we will do a very involved, we undertake a very involved matching process, um, wherein the companies will speak with the potential candidates, the candidates will speak with the companies, and there's got to be a mutual match, a mutual agreement. And again, as we all know, nobody wants to be forced to work in any particular company or environment that they're not comfortable with, because at the end of the day, success depends on the team and the people. So we are very mindful in, in, in how we um, interview people who we think would be great candidates to support or consultants to support client companies. Meanwhile, we're, we're also really mindful about uh, being um, very, very uh, thoughtful in how we uh, understand what the unmet needs are at the client and ensure that there's a, an optimal match made there. Danforth has a much broader range of offerings. Are the development professionals you place able to plug into and leverage the broader set of offerings and expertise at Danforth? They are. So as you know, um, you know, Danforth does offer many other um, um, uh, functional areas in terms of support. There's, I will bring up right now, strategic communications. And, and the reason I bring that up, which is effectively it's IR and PR, 
uh, we've got a group here that that um, is excels in that space. And the reason that becomes important for the development side of the world is because um, there's a lot of communication involved in, with respect to clinical trials. If you know, if you're a company that's that's a public company, or even if you're a private company, there are some some news items that that surpass a threshold, and so some things need to be disclosed uh, to investors and, and certainly to 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 um, to public investors if you're a public company. So having support from our colleagues within the strategic communications group really is great because they can help us in shape help us as in help us help our clients shape the right message to be communicating um, in a way where the public and investors will understand what the data readouts indicate or not uh, in terms of success. You know, if something is successful, they will help us communicate that. If something is not, they'll help us communicate that as well because words matter and how you communicate a failure is just as important as how you communicate a success. So I'll say certainly that our strategic comms Colleagues, um, you know, work very closely with the development uh, side of things, or they, they, they are. There's certainly an overlap in terms of how they, um, they, they support folks in the development group. Um, certainly on the HR side as well. With that practice, we're always looking to to identify the right talent to bring in, uh, but into into client companies, and they they can also step up there with respect to their talent management efforts in supporting client companies in hiring the right individuals to to execute on the right uh, right programs. Um, and then there are several other areas like finance, um, FP&A, and then there's risk management. Um, and um, I know I'm going to be blanking on one or two, but um, all of those people, we really work in concert with each other. And there are many um, examples of, of client opportunities or client engagements where we've got effectively a cross-functional team supporting programs within uh, client companies. And so these these individuals, even though they may be in, independent individuals from, from Danforth, end up uh, working together in certain instances where there, there is a requirement for concerted, um, coordinated projects like execution. And for people interested in learning more about Danforth's development strategy and operation services, where can they go? Well, we can, you can certainly go to our website, uh, danforthadvisors.com. Um, and there is a drop down menu that highlights the various practice areas that Danforth is focused on these days. And, um, you'll certainly find quite a bit of information in the drop down menu on the development strategy and operations services or, or functionalities. Um, we've got a lot here today and we continue to grow and really expand these offerings to, to, to really service the needs of of portfolio companies um, that are looking to go from discovery all the way through to um, to approval. Romani Varanasi, Managing Director of Development Strategy and Operations for Danforth. Romani, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks a lot, Donnie. It's been great to chat with you today. Thanks for listening. The Big Four Bio Podcast is brought to you by Big Four Bio leading aggregator service of the top life sciences regions around the world. To subscribe for free to Big Four Bio's daily newsletters, go to big4bio.com. This podcast is produced by the Levine Media Group for Big Four Bio. Our theme music is provided for the podcast by the Jonah Levine Collective and appears on the album Attention Deficit on Alpha Pup Records. <laughs>